Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. Human beings evolved to be doers, not whiners and couch potatoes, right? We are problem solvers. You know, this is doable, and it just means you have to do it. (laughs) And so the fact that we can do it, uh, the question is, are we willing to do it? Beyond doom and gloom, what can realistically be done to reduce the consequences of climate change? You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. If you've heard a well-informed presentation on global warming, it's hard not to come away feeling a little bleak. That's certainly how I've reacted after attending lectures and talking with experts on the subject. They paint a possible future of heat waves, drought, and intensified weather that can trigger conditions from flooding to tornadoes. And it's happening even faster than scientists had feared, all because we continue to pump heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere. And so if all you're focusing on is dire predictions, this is what you're hearing. The news is that we're going to lose the, the creature comforts of the climate that we are used to. Francis Moore-Lapay of the Small Planet Institute. It's going to be more costly to feed ourselves because we're, we're losing cropland. Uh, look, at, look at the world. There are hungry people, a billion of us who are hungry now. Oh, my God, you know, with climate change, is that going to include me? Am I going hungry? So I think it's, it's all of that, the, the, the loss of creatures of species gone forever. Uh, that's, that's a loss. Spe- species that have arrived as part of nature's delicate balance. Exactly. And, and then the fear of, well, the tipping point idea is getting more play that once a certain level of change occurs, then it, it cascades in even faster and we don't know all those tipping points. So I think just fear of the unknown is also a sense of loss, a loss that, of a sense that we can predict that the future will be, for my children and my grandchildren, what I grew up in. I mean, with climate change, certainly that's not true. So it's a loss of a predictability about the future. Although predictability was always something of a myth. We, we like yeah, to but I'm not comfort saying, I'm not talking anything about rationality right now. I'm talking about emotion that I think, you know, I grew up thinking, oh, well, of course, you know, it's... It's warm in Texas on, on Christmas, and it probably will always be like this. Isn't it nice? It's, it's not very snowy like it must be there in New England, but this is the way it will always be. I mean, that was the world I grew up in, that 
Climate with Climate. Francis LePay is a long-standing voice of environmental concerns and solutions. Her books have sold millions of copies, including the 1971 classic Diet for a Small Planet. Her latest work, entitled EcoMind, urges a sharp shift in the way we look at looming, mounting environmental crises. We must turn away from self-defeatism, she pleads, and toward actual steps we can take to a future that is both sustainable and attainable. But it starts with facing facts. Here's Chris Vaccaro, a spokesman for the National Weather Service at the end of 2011, one of the wildest weather years on record. We've seen historic events of nearly every weather category. So in terms of snowstorms and hurricanes and floods and droughts, all of these events this year ranked in the top three or even the highest ever recorded. Scientists are cautious about linking specific weather events to climate change, but they say the unmistakable trend of increasing heat waves, rainfall and droughts is consistent with climate change. So confronting this evidence, you can't blame Frances Moore LePay for at times getting overwhelmed, as she did after attending an in-depth seminar on environmental challenges. Gosh, I think of myself as really motivated and energized, and I walked out feeling like a ton of bricks. So just really, whoa. So I thought, gosh, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be another way. This is not working. It's not working because we want to motivate people to be part of the solution. And if we're feeling just absolutely overwhelmed, then that's not working. And what could work without lying to ourselves? So without lying to ourselves means what? Well, it means thinking, how do we think about this? You see, I'm a firm believer that we human beings create the world according to our mental map, the, the core ideas. And there's a lot of evidence now about how our brains work in this way. that we Create the world or see the world? Well, both. That we literally cannot see what doesn't fit inside our mental map. and So we walk around kind of with blinders on. Yes, all of us do. Filters. I like to think of them as filters. And those filters are fine if they're life-serving. But my thesis of my life, in a sense, is that uh, we're, we're now operating in a dominant frame or filter system that is fundamentally life-denying. And that's really the problem that we have to break free of. But life-affirming options, like ways out of the climate change quandary, may elude us because we're not willing to think creatively enough and because we may be looking in the wrong places. Thanksgiving morning getting up to make my root vegetable dish and rushing to the kitchen to grab my Dutch oven, and I knew exactly where it was. I went there. It wasn't there. Went to another cupboard. It wasn't there. Went to the basement. Oh, it's not there. I finally gave up, and then, you know, an hour later... I turn around and there it is, except that I had to put a plant in it, David. So I had, in my middle map, I was looking for a kitchen item, not something that has a plant in it. So I literally couldn't see it, even though it's big and red, right? And right there in front of you. Right there, right there in my kitchen. So it's that example, we see what we expect to see, and we can't see what we don't expect to see. I mean, at some point I did see it, but it's difficult if we are looking through a certain lens. So... My, my stick is to try to figure out what is the lens through which we are now looking that is actually accelerating 
our global crises. And so you think that the global crisis that seems to be gathering momentum around climate change is a byproduct of how we're seeing it? Absolutely. And of course, not just climate change, but the passion of my life began on world hunger. Why is there hunger in a world of plenty? And that's more acute today. There are more hungry people than when I wrote Diet for a Small Planet, and yet we're producing significantly more food per person. So it's it's not just climate change, although, yes, my short answer, yes. And this, I see the same faulty thought system or filter system operating to create hunger that is operating to create this climate crisis. Francis Morlepe believes that certain dubious assumptions underlie a lot of the thinking that has led us into the climate change trap. One of these assumptions is that plundering the world's resources is inevitable because people are intrinsically greedy and competitive materialists. In other words, that we're doomed to a downward spiral. But she points out that just as basic to human societies are the capacity for cooperation, for creative problem solving, and a thirst for meaning that imparts a long-term perspective. What gives you the most hope and what sustains you in your work to understand and reverse the effects of climate change? That people are able to change their mental map and break free and have energizing that we can, that we can that turn we can, over a new leaf that we we can that we are capable of that sometimes it takes a rude uh, jolt you know uh, but um, so I guess um, the key then is what enables us to see the world through new eyes and not just react out of fear and in our old patterns what are the patterns of thinking that keep us in despair and fear uh, which then block our action for a lot of people. I mean, I'm not saying everyone reacts to fear by paralysis, but a lot of us do, that we just feel we can't deal. And, you know, when you think about it, it's not the big challenge that flattens the human spirit, you know, that we've that human beings have shown up in, in quite dramatic ways to meet problems of the past. What makes most of us feel... Hmm, really down is feeling, is not the problem itself, but feeling useless, feeling powerless to do anything. That's, if we don't feel we have any role to play that's meaningful, then we do feel we have to block it out. So part of the answer is helping people see that they do have power moment to moment to contribute to either solutions or worsening of the problem. We're exploring new ways of thinking and, as we'll hear, new ways of acting as a constructive response to the threat posed by climate change. You're listening to a Humankind special, Hope in Action. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, please visit humanmedia.org. get a handle on positive steps we can take to counteract climate change, I paid a visit to one of the world's leading climate scientists, William Moomaw, professor of international environmental policy at Tufts University. He's a longtime lead author at the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a body of hundreds of top experts which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. There's a lot of information and misinformation flying around on this subject, 
So first, I wondered what consensus has been reached by experts who study this problem closely. Well, the thing that is absolutely clear is that we've been adding heat-trapping gases to the atmosphere since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The mid-19th century. Mid-19th century. And um, that those gases are now far beyond any place they've been in the last uh, 800,000 years. Well, 800,000 years is a pretty gigantic span of history. So how can scientists make such a claim about the very distant past? People figured out that if you drill down into the ice in a place like Greenland or Antarctica, where the ice is, is where the ice thick has been and accumu- old. Cu- accumulating for thousands of years, that what you're doing is you're going back in time. Kind of like the rings of a tree. Like like tree rings. And so what was amazing is they found that there was air trapped. Every year there's a layer of snow and air gets trapped there. And then the next year more snow falls and this gradually turns to ice and the air remains trapped. So you dig a, 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 a a big cylindrical core down and you can count down how many years you've gone and you can extract the air from each layer and you can measure the amount of carbon dioxide, the amount of methane. So they very cleverly began drilling and drilling and drilling. And the first record went back 160,000 years. So it went through the past ice age and the previous ice age. Eventually, researchers turned to even older ice formations in Antarctica and again found the concentration of heat-trapping gases going back hundreds of thousands of years was simply much lower than what scientists have measured in today's atmosphere. This means we've entered uncharted territory with potentially perilous repercussions from recent warming. We know that the temperature has risen more than a degree Fahrenheit now for the global average, but that's not uniform. In the Arctic, uh, there are places where it's risen four degrees, which is huge in terms of the average. And it means that in the the winter now, we're seeing the, um, the, the ice pack form much less thickly than it used to. And in the summertime, we actually are having open water in the Arctic Ocean. The evidence of this is very clear. Uh, Associated with that temperature rise has been an increase in very intense events of rainfall, snowfall. Um, The uh, extensive droughts are certainly consistent with what is predicted that we've been seeing and the intense rainfalls in other places. In other words, we've shifted the weather patterns. So we've had uh, uh, more intense storms in the Northeast and more droughts in the Southwest. When you talk about a temperature rise of four degrees, to most of us that seems pretty minimal, minimal. the kind of thing that might happen, uh, you know, between breakfast and lunch. Right. (laughs) <laughs> Why is that so significant? Okay, to give you an exa- a comparison, um, the, um, at, at the depths of the ice age 12,000 years ago, the Earth's temperature was about 10 degrees colder than it is today. 10 degrees. You get 10 degrees change in a day. It's not the change in the day, it's the average change and uh, the variations around that average. So, um, and we're looking at 10 degrees warming Uh, in this century if we continue on the trajectory we're on. And that has a huge, huge impact on the Earth's climate system. And why? Why is the impact of such a small 
change in temperature so gigantic? Because now we're trapping this very huge amount of heat. And that heat is evaporating more water from the oceans. And so it's not just the little bit of temperature rise that's the problem. It's the fact that we're also putting all this extra moisture in the atmosphere. And weather is driven by the difference in temperature between the equator and the, and the north and south poles. So you have cold poles and warm equator. And that difference is changing. And so that means that the weather patterns that we have historically been used to and on which we've based our entire agriculture system, uh, where we have built cities because of the access to water, um, uh, the, um, the, the style of buildings we've built, which are for the climate that we're used to, are no longer appropriate. I mean, just look at the number of highways that were uh, cut in, um, in, in this uh, hurricane that hit the Northeast and the storm, tropical storm Lee that followed it. I mean, you had 140-year-old covered bridges washing away. Well, if they were there for 140 years, it means we've never had a flood like that before in 140 years. This was in the summer of 2011. Summer, yes, summer of 2011. Uh, the biggest drought spot in the world was actually located in Texas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. That's where we had these incredible fires in Texas. Um, burned forests, burned houses, burned buildings, burned whole towns. Um, we had similar kind of situation uh, in, um, uh, in, in Russia, near Moscow, which had never had 100 degree Fahrenheit weather ever. And they had temperatures in excess of that. They had fires, the air pollution was so bad that the uh, death rate from uh, lung, dis lung disability things, asthma and so forth, doubled. Um, and fires all around Moscow, so yes. surrounding the city. Surrounding the city, right. And so it was a smoke-choked city. Now, the smoke is not from climate change, but the conditions are from climate change. Chris Vaccaro of the National Weather Service. With the specter of global warming, you do raise the, uh, the likelihood or the probability of having more heat waves and longer droughts and greater wildfires and also having areas that might be wet and have extreme floods. A lot of people say, well, clearly there's been something different in the last period, you know, right. decade or so. The, the temperature readings have been higher in the summer. There have been these severe droughts. The storms seem to have been fiercer. But it's frequently asked, isn't this just part of the natural cycle? Mm -hmm. we, mm -hmm. we have always had fluctuations in weather patterns. Right. Why do scientists feel that what's happening now is qualitatively different from the usual fluctuations? Well, they're, they're, they're sort of, there are cycles that run in different rates. There's a 120,000-year cycle, which brings on the ice ages and the interglacial warming periods. Uh, we also have much shorter cycles, 10 or 20-year time periods. We have cycles that operate once or twice a decade, like the El Nino and the La Nina. Um, and th those are still going on. But they're going on on a background of a higher temperature. So when you get an El Nino and the Earth warms by a couple of, uh, a couple of degrees in that year, it's, it's, it's warming on top of a baseline that is already one plus degrees higher. What that means is things like, uh, the reason we're seeing the death of coral reefs, for example, is coral reefs could, could withstand a one degree temperature rise, 
but they can't stand two degrees on top of an already one degree. And so we're killing off the coral reefs. So there's an example of there's where a, a small incremental yes. change in temperature can really have right. a major impact. Right. Uh, crop production this past year was down in many parts of the world because of the heat. In other words, there's an optimal temperature for corn, and it has to be at a certain time in the growth cycle of corn, let's say. If it's hotter than that during that cycle, you get a reduction in yield. The same is true of rice. Uh, rice, which feeds, what, 60% of the world's population, the staple food of 60% of the world's population, um, that production in Southeast Asia, the rice basket of the world, uh, is down about 10%. And, and it's almost all attributable to uh, warmer nights because rice plants, their metabolism depends on temperature. What is the potential impact of this on public health? Uh, the impacts on public health are rather severe. Um, warmer weather leads to um, more intense urban air pollution, for example. The amount of ozone and um, some of the particulate matter and so forth uh, is, is worse in warmer weather, particularly the ozone is bad, which is bad for asthmatics. Those hot, hazy, humid hot, days. Hot, hazy, humid days. When, when you can see the air, when it's brown. <laughs> when, when you, uh, air is supposed to be transparent. Yes. I remember years ago, uh, one of the late night comics, I think it was Jack Parr, who uh, did his show from Los Angeles and did one in New York. And one of his lines was, I'm really uncomfortable in New York. I don't like air I can't see. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, air you can see is not good for you. And we, we find all the time that whenever we have these, these events, and uh, they are incurring with, incre with increasing frequency now, we, we manage to do a good job of cleaning up the air in Los Angeles and other places. Uh, but we're not making further progress. Uh, because the, glo the, the global warming, I think, is contributing to more warm days, which mean more air pollution. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's leading scientific body on this subject, attributes the sharp global rise in heat-trapping gases primarily to human activity. The panel points to our reliance on fossil fuels like oil, coal, and natural gas, and on certain chemicals used in agriculture. So to a significant extent, our future use of these substances will determine whether climate change intensifies or abates. Americans most concerned about global warming, frustrated by what they see as inadequate federal action, focus more and more on local initiatives, climate scientist William Moomaw. You know, when I look at what's happening, the, the, the number of cities and towns that have taken on uh, climate change as an issue, there are over 300 mayors in this country who have, and, and they're in every state, uh, including, in, you know, from, from, from Maine to Florida and Texas to, uh, to, to Oregon. It's almost like city-level government is much less paralyzed than Washington, which and is riddled you, with all the special absolutely. interests. And when you think about it, Cities are responsible for about 80% of emissions. And cities control land use planning, building codes, transportation planning. They control um, a huge fraction of the things we have to do. 
So we don't have to wait for Washington to get their act together if we can get the cities to do it. But the window of opportunity is rapidly narrowing because certain environmental impacts will be irreversible. Environmentalists hoped that at least during the Great Recession, less economic activity would mean fewer energy-related greenhouse gas emissions. That's what happened in previous recessions. But the year 2010 actually set a record high for the release of heat-trapping carbon dioxide at about 10 million tons. Generation of electricity, historically an energy guzzler, is one area of focus and a source of hope for William Muma. Massachusetts and nine other states, I think it is now, has a, a system for dealing with power plants. We've already met our target under that. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but the first stuff is easy. And, uh, and, the, and the, the, the states, uh, cities, and the universities, I mean, the number of universities that are competing with each other as to how much they can remove, reduce their carbon emissions. So, you know, this is doable. And it just means you have to do it. <laughs> if we're willing to do it, it can happen. And we could begin addressing things. And eventually, as, as someone pointed out to me, there has never been a major movement in the United States that began in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Women's suffrage, the end of slavery, the end of the Vietnam War, the environmental movement in the 70s. Civil rights. Civil rights. All of it began outside of Washington. So why should we expect this to be different? So here's a story illustrating that positive change is possible. Planting of trees counteracts the effects of climate change. Trees naturally absorb heat-trapping carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, in addition to their role of providing us with oxygen. Yet worldwide, the trend is deforestation. Each year, millions of acres of forests are cut down. Then along came a determined woman from Kenya named Wangari Mathai, who led a mass movement to plant trees. In 2004, she accepted the Nobel Peace Prize. Through the Greenbelt Movement, thousands of ordinary citizens were mobilized and empowered to take action and effect change. They learned to, to overcome fear and a sense of hopelessness and moved to defend democratic rights. Well, do you realize, David, she planted seven trees on Earth Day in 1977, right? Author Francis Moore LaPay. If we had heard about that then, what would we have said? That's nice. We would have said, isn't that nice, Wingari? Well, those became, through her courage, she just kept walking. As I think. She just kept going, despite humiliation, despite beatings and imprisonment. She kept going. 45 million trees is the last count I've heard of her Green Belt movement that came from those seven. Okay, then she, after she got the Nobel Peace Prize, she helped to inspire the Plant for the Planet program of the UN Environmental Program, right? Well, the last count there, 11 billion trees worldwide. <laughs> what an amazing thing. Would we have given much chance of her seven trees becoming 11 billion trees? No. So from this framework, of possibility, it's so freeing for me, David. You knew Wangari Maathai. Yes. Who passed away of cancer in 2011. What was it in her energy that allowed this token initial gesture of planting seven trees to turn into 
a vast forest of millions. Well, she was a person of great faith, but deep and deep connection. It was all her faith, her religious faith, deeply connected with nature. And at her memorial, we heard her words accompanied by Paul Winter music talking about what happens to her when she sits and watches the river flow. And from that, I, I got, and from many other, other um, encounters, you know, that it was that sense of, you know, that just keep on moving. She said to Anna and me when we interviewed her for our book, Hope's Edge, she described this, this process in her life, you know, just keep walking, just keep walking. Francis Moore LePay, author of Diet for a Small Planet and recently Eco Mind. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Art Cohen and Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, part one of Hope in Action, is Humankind Program number 173. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.